When my grandfather was growing up here and when my father was growing up here, uh, they grew up on an island. Not physically, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, the Rondo community had to be sort of a self-sustaining ecosystem. Uh, You know, other folks wouldn't sell to them. Other folks wouldn't buy from them. Other folks wouldn't hire them. And so there was sort of a a, a forced cohesion uh, that put those families together. The development of Rondo was influenced by many things. There were practices like racial covenants and redlining firmly rooted in racism. There was proximity to good jobs, like those found on the railroad and local factories. And there was the ingenuity of the Black residents who created services for themselves when they were denied by others. This community didn't just happen. It was cultivated externally by a society that wanted Black labor without Black progress, and internally by the members of the Rondo community that wouldn't allow themselves to be denied access to a good life. I'm Brant Williams. And I'm Jonathan Rabb. And this is Untangled Roots. In the 1930s and 40s, Rondo was becoming a primary location for Black residents living in the Twin Cities, which is also known as Minneapolis and St. Paul. Black residents could buy homes, own small businesses, and had access to what was good employment for Black people during this time. From the outside, Rondo could be viewed like many other neighborhoods in St. Paul, but there was a key difference. It was a different community than probably other neighborhoods, because in another neighborhood, there might be an Irish person next to an Italian, next to a Jew, and maybe they wouldn't be as close. But in Rondo, everybody was fighting the same racism. This is Kate Cavett, an oral historian who spoke with nearly three dozen Rondo residents as part of her work with the Minnesota History Center. 20 years ago, she recorded several stories from the residents of Rondo. We asked her to share some insight on how the racism faced by the residents impacted the Rondo community. They had a closer connection, and they knew each other's kids, and they knew the challenges, and they knew the richness, and they knew the talents, and they were supporting each other's kids, and they were looking out for each other's kids. Or many of the stories that I would hear is, if you did something wrong, you might have gotten whooped a couple of times by the aunties that may not have been your blood aunties, but they were your aunties or uncles before you got home because everybody was going to hold you accountable for being the best that you could be. And if a teacher at the school told you that you weren't going to go to college or you weren't going to be able to amount to anything. It wasn't just your parents that said, oh, no, you're smart. You're going to go to college. It was the whole neighborhood that were going to tell you, oh, no, you're going to go to college. So Rondo was this community of love and support that believed in the young people. It's important to know that while there were many challenges facing the Black residents of Rondo on a daily basis, they still lived their lives. They didn't lack joy. They sought out connection through organizations like churches and social clubs. 
They went to restaurants and out dancing. The only difference was they were not welcome in spaces used by the white residents of St. Paul. So they built spaces of their own. Melvin Carter Sr. believed that the neighborhood was better off in the old days when it was more self-contained. He shared his thoughts with me back in 2001. I think uh, our neighborhood was better off then than it is now, we as a people, because we had everything we needed in in a confined area of about... 15 blocks, you could do a go. You wouldn't even have to come out of that area to get stuff done, anywhere from legal work to illegal work. <laughs> so, there are three Melvin Carters that we're going to be talking about Melvin Carter Sr., who is the grandfather of the mayor, Melvin Carter Jr., who is the father of the mayor, and then, of course, Melvin Carter III, who is the mayor. When we talked to Kate Cavett, she highlighted the churches of Rondo that played a crucial part in strengthening the community. There were a lot of social clubs in the community. Now, you couldn't go downtown and eat at restaurants, but you could buy your groceries in the restaurants on Rondo Avenue. In Rondo, you could you could shop. Now, there were other places in town that wouldn't let black folks come in and shop. But there was community, there was support, there was getting together to uh, share with each other what was going on, to support each other's children. Right. Uh, There were churches that were right in the community, and the churches are still there. Right. Peter Claver, Camphor Methodist, uh, Pilgrim Baptist, St. James Methodist. I mean, the churches have been there, I think Pilgrim Baptist is over 100 years old. Right. And they've, they've always been there. They're vibrant. And the churches have always supported the community. Melvin Carter Sr. spoke about his early experience with the church community in Rondo. My mother was a member of Pilgrim Baptist Church. And I, she brought me into the church. Oh, I much have been a young dude about six or seven years old, and uh, she was a faithful member of the church. And uh, and uh, we'd go there every Sunday for Sunday school and so forth. And the whole community was kind of built around that church, uh, more or less. Of course, there were other black churches also in the community, but I say this was the dominant place. One of the places that came up again and again in our research was the Sterling Club. Incorporated in 1919, the Sterling Club was started by a group of Black working men as a social club, and over time, it became an important symbol of the Rondo community. Kate Cavett gave us some insight on the importance of the Sterling Club. And tell me more about, um, you know, as you mentioned, these the, the daily, the institutions that, that supported people, you mentioned, like, with the church. Um, let's talk more about the social clubs, because it seemed like those are uh, there were clubs that sounds like anybody could start one, or, or how did these clubs usually start? Well, you you couldn't go. You know, if you wanted to have a party, you couldn't go to a hotel downtown and rent a room and have a party. If you, you know, if a, the men wanted to get together after work and have a drink, you couldn't go downtown any place to the bars and have a drink. So the Sterling Club began, and the Sterling Club had a couple of locations. It's, the Sterling Club is still in existence. Uh, 
uh, I was given the privilege of being going to the Sterling Club. It has a very nice bar. It's an opportunity for black men to come together to have business meetings, to socialize with each other in in a very in a business-like environment, just like other businessmen do. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was a need for that, and and it it had been happening. Right. So folks just created their own where they were not able to patronize these other places. They built their own. Right. And the social clubs were, they would have gatherings that, you know, I'm not, it would depend on the club. You know, maybe it was once a month and they'd go to people's houses and they would have dances. And some of the social clubs would come and would, gather more often. People would belong to more than one social club. Um, And later on, they would finally be able to rent some rooms and some hotels way later. But uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, no, it it was all in people's homes. There were also more informal spaces like dance halls. Here, Mayor Carter reads his grandfather, Melvin Carter Sr.'s own words as he tells the story of an adventure he had in Rondo, sneaking into a performance by the jazz great Fats Waller. There was a little place right up here on Lexington called Coliseum, right off of University. And it was the one-story big dance hall, and I remember seeing Fats Waller there. He was a very famous piano player at that time. I remember later that was me and a friend of mine snuck in there because we were underage. And he played a big upright piano and he wore a derby and always had a big bottle of gin sitting on the piano there. And the proprietor saw us in there and told us to get out. And Fat said, let him stay there. Me and my buddy, we sat with our backs against the wall behind the big piano and heard him play all night long. (laughs) He really entertained us. He knew we were back there. You could get two or three hundred people in the Coliseum and they had some big dances. Rondo was a close-knit community, but it still had its own struggles with class. Even within Rondo, there were distinctions between the working class and the middle class. Kate Cavett explains. I also noticed um, and there's been some discussion about the different areas of the neighborhood, um, Oatmeal Hill and Cornbread Valley. Corn, What's corn. the difference? Cornmeal Valley. Yes. Yes. What's the difference between those two areas? Well, one of... Cornmeal Valley was supposed to be less affluent, and Oatmeal Hill was more affluent. And uh, Cornmeal Valley was looked a little rougher. Um, it was people didn't have as much money. the The jobs were not as uh, maybe not as good. The houses weren't kept up as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like the good suburbs, the, the bad sub. Right. Was there any uh, rivalry between the two? Did Was there people who didn't necessarily like the, them folks from, you know, Cornmeal Valley coming up to the hill? I think there was, and I think at different times, different periods, it was more than others. 
In a place like Rondo, the condition of the houses in the neighborhood could lead to the perception that the area was less than when compared to other neighborhoods. Kate Cavett explained that there was a deliberate and very personal reason why some homes were not kept in pristine condition. So often it would be told that, well, the reason that they could go through Rondo, because it didn't look as good. The buildings were not kept up. The houses were not kept up. It wasn't one of our fancier neighborhoods in St. Paul. And what I absolutely learned from doing the stories was that if there was a decision to make, well, should we send our child to college or should we put a new roof on? Well, that was an easy decision. You're going to send your child to college. Right. You know, the the roof is going to have to wait. Or, you know, oh, there's a niece, a nephew in Chicago, and there's some racism going on there. Should we bring them and take them into our household, and it's going to be another mouth to feed? Should we bring somebody up from Mississippi? Because ah, there's there's some racism. Somebody's looking to maybe get them in trouble. Well, we're going to bring them in. We're going to take feed another mouth in our household. And if we have to not take care of the outside of our property, well, we'll just have to do that. When critical eyes from outside of a community begin to level judgment, it can be even more difficult to keep a community intact. We asked Mayor Carter his thoughts on why it was so important for Rondo to maintain its close community ties. We know that there's neighborhoods that you and I, no matter how much money we had or how much credit we had, we couldn't have bought a home. And so in some ways, the only way to build that wealth was to do it together. Uh, we know that there's places who, no matter how good a resume we had or how great a company that we built, uh, wouldn't have done business with us. In many ways, the only way to do that would have been to do it together. And then the other thing is, as we see uh, the you know history out of you know uh, uh, Rosewood and, and and Tulsa and the Black Wall Street, uh, we also know that excellence for a large part of American history has been dangerous for African-American families to achieve. So the ability to kind of be back-to-back with one another uh, wasn't just a social thing. It's a matter of safety and protection of ourselves, our families, our churches, our institutions. So one of the the things that Kate was really adamant about when talking about Rondo and the people there that I thought was interesting that she mentioned to me. And she said, if people saw the condition of someone's home as maybe being a little run down and maybe need a little paint, the paint was chipping and needed to be repainted, or maybe the fence, there was a little break in the in the in some of the fence boards that weren't being repaired. She said, you know, the people made the conscious choice to, if they were faced with spending their money either on making sure their kids were properly educated and clothed, and fixing a little cosmetic features of the home, it was not a difficult choice for them to make. They would pick um, making sure their kids were able to get educated and fed and do what they needed to do. So if there was anything that, that if people are trying to paint Rondo as somehow being run down, um, I think her perspective was from talking to the people she spoke with, people paid more attention to the condition of their children, their communities, their families, than necessarily if there was something, uh, a cosmetic fix that needed to be made on a, a home or a business. Yeah. And that was like, that was 
From what I understand, one of the, like, reasons that people would justify urban renewal, right? Like, these houses are... Right. These houses are kind of falling apart a little bit. Yeah, but it's dilapidated or it's blighted or yeah. the terms that they use to... That the government will use to, to, to legally take property. They'll say if there's a blight um, and they can, you know, they use that as an uh, entree into, you know, yeah. eminent domain. But these people were just taking their money and putting it where they, you know, cared about it most. Right, which was, right. Their values were to make sure that their children were being properly educated and cared for. And, you know, the, if they need to put some more shingles on the roof next year, they had to do it then. Very understandable. So what defines the success of a community? On the surface, Rondo had everything you would expect to see in a thriving neighborhood. There were jobs, small businesses, community organizations, and places to socialize. And there were strong community ties that encouraged the residents to support each other. The only real difference between Rondo and other successful St. Paul communities was that the success of Rondo was created by Black people. Unfortunately, Rondo's story of success echoes the history of many other Black communities across the United States. As history has shown us, when Black progress begins to lead to Black advancement, others feel threatened. And one could argue that the gains made by Black Rondo residents made it the object of white fear, thus dooming it to the fate suffered by other long-gone Black enclaves. Thank you so much for listening. Untangled Roots is a production of NPR News and part of our North Star Journey project. Untangled Roots would not have been possible without the work of many people, including executive producer Sarah Glover, producers Twyla Dang and Brant Williams, hosts Brant Williams and Jonathan Rabb, sound design and mixing Alex Simpson, researcher Anne Harrington, with original music by Greg Grease. You can learn more about Untangled Roots, the North Star Journey Project, and find additional resources by going to the NPR News website at nprnews.org. Untangled Roots was made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.